It's Wednesday, June 2nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, our man in Colorado, it's Tim Byers. Good to see you. Good to see you, sir. How are you today? I'm good. We have another acquisition to discuss. We've got news in the semiconductor chip industry, but we're going to start today with Zoom Video. First quarter revenue grew 191%. And I'm laughing because that seems like a made-up number. But it grew 191%. Gross margins are getting fatter, and yet shares of Zoom Video down a couple percentage points due to guidance. And I get that the business that the growth is slowing down, Tim. But I looked at this quarter and I just thought, I don't think I would want to be in the position of having to make a strong bear case against Zoom Video. No, I mean, can can you imagine? I I guess here's my question for anybody, and and maybe I'll pose it to you, Chris, as, you know, the the investor, you know, on, on the other side here, potentially, like, so Zoom is, is disappointing, like, how many yachts can you water ski behind, to quote Wall Street? <laughs> like, how many yachts are you going to water ski behind? Come on! Like, wh- what do you want here? I-, I think, you know, when I look at these numbers, Chris, um, and let's just hit some of them very, very quickly here. So, you know, just under $1.6 billion in, in free cash flow. That includes a, a pretty fat contribution from stock-based compensation, but... But not a ton, you know, under 350 million. This is an organically growing business. Like you said, revenue up 191%, 956.2 million. Remember that the consensus here was, I think, 906 million. So they didn't just like edge out the consensus here, they blew the doors off the consensus. 497,000 customers, that's up 87% year over year. 12th consecutive quarter of dollar-based net expansion rate up 130% or higher. And large customers, those that are spending at least $100,000 a year on Zoom, that's up uh, over 160%. So this company, I mean, I, I know I've, I don't like to necessarily quote my boss, Ron Gross, but firing on all cylinders. Firing on all cylinders, right? Well, and you know, of all the numbers you just hit, though, you know, that, that one at the end there in terms of the people who are paying them the most money and sort of what what direction that's going in because we we talk about this all the time whatever whatever business you're in the cost of acquiring new customers right is expensive it's right. certainly more expensive than keeping them and if you're keeping them satisfied then they're going to stay with you right. because you know not that there aren't um, you know, there, there are switching costs associated with switching away from Zoom video, particularly if you're a business. If you're saying, okay, we're not happy with them, we're going to go with, you know, the, the solution offered by Cisco Systems or, you know, or, right. or some other company. Uh, they're, they're doing a good job taking care of their customers. Because keep in mind, you go back 15 months and that was the question about right. Zoom video. It was, well, sure, everyone's using them now that the pandemic has started because they've got this free solution. But how many people are going to pay them? And here we are, yeah. 15 months later. Uh, turns out the short answer is a lot. A yeah. lot of, <laughs> of businesses are going to pay them. Right. I mean, you can just imagine. You can, you, can, you can almost imagine it here where you have you know, the, the consensus saying, hey, Zoom's just a pandemic stock. And Eric Yuan saying, can you see my numbers? 
Here's a nice tall glass to shut the heck up. I mean, come on. What do you want from me here? But let's just hit a couple of other things here because what you said, Chris, I think is really illuminating. The first is that when you have customers that want to stick with you and spend more, then your unit economic costs go down. And the net effect of that, you know, when you look at the financials here, you get a fatter balance sheet and your cash flow goes up. You're turning more dollars that you sell into actual cash you can use to reinvest in the business. So I ran a couple of numbers here, Chris, just for, for some perspective. Um, there is a metric that I use called cash flow return on investment. And essentially the idea here is when a company generates a dollar of cash from its business, how does it put that dollar to work to generate new assets and then keep that from creating new liabilities on its balance sheet. And the higher the number, it's sort of an indicator, if not a perfect indicator of what sometimes we call return on invested capital. Like this business takes a buck, puts it back into its business and generates a return on it. So at Zoom, even if you take out the contributions from stock-based comp, it's over 30%. That's a massive number. That's a massive number. And we're not in the middle of the pandemic anymore. So these are not artificially inflated numbers. Uh, so I, I think when I look at this business, Chris, it reminds me a lot of Microsoft, let's say 20 years ago. It has a business that sort of appeals to consumers in a way. You have consumers that are using this, using the free version. And then you have companies that are saying, this is a part of our workflow. So it's like, hey, I'm gonna use maybe some of the free office tools, but as a company, yeah, I gotta have Word, I gotta have Excel, I'm gonna pay the money to have the office suite. I think that's what's happening with Zoom. Let's move on to the semiconductor industry. Taiwan Semiconductor is in the news because they're building a new factory in Arizona. They plan to spend $12 billion on the project. Um, uh, and because there's a chip shortage, and because, by the way, the U.S. federal government is talking about spending tens of billions of dollars in subsidies yeah. for the semiconductor chip industry. And this seems like the type of investment that you would want to see if you were a Taiwan semiconductor shareholder. You absolutely want to see it. I am a Taiwan semiconductor uh, shareholder. And here's the thing. This, so this groundbreaking is now there won't be any real production here until what appears to be 2024. But here's why this is so important for Taiwan Semi. And if you're a Taiwan Semiconductor shareholder, they are still the biggest manufacturer of Apple chips. And let me tell you how good it looks come 2024 when Apple says, hey, we're going to build our M2 chip. Right now it's the M1 chip and all the Macs. We're gonna build the M2 chip in Arizona. We're going to, you know, source all of our iPhone chips and all of our iOS device chips. We're going to do that in Arizona, and we have an American-made story. That's amazing. Um, it's what the Biden administration wants. I think that's what Americans want, too. And we were thinking for a while there, Chris, that this was going to be a little bit of an Intel story, that Intel was going to come back, it was going to get government money, it was going to stand up new fabrication facilities, and we're going to have an American company with American-made chips into computers and devices here in U.S. shores. Well, it turns out that Taiwan Semiconductor has said, you know what, give us a piece of that action and we will invest in your country. I think this is a brilliant move 
by Taiwan Semiconductor, and I expect it to pay off long term. If for no other reason that you keep happy the customer that is paying a big chunk of your bills, and that's Apple. So there are a few essentially macroeconomic stories that have gone on over the last six months um, that all have, at some point when you're looking at these stories, somewhere on the list of questions, for all of them, you get to the question, when is this going to stop? So housing prices and sort of the spike in housing prices that we've seen across the country and looking at that, when is is that going to stop or slow down? I think another one is the semiconductor chip shortage, which Absolutely. affects so many industries. When you look, I mean, obviously, they're just starting these plans to build this factory to years before it's online. What should we be watching for, if not as investors, just as consumers, um, to to feel like, okay, we're through the worst of this shortage? Or are we already through the worst of it? No, we're not. I don't think we're through the worst of it. And I think it's going to be a long term shortage, Chris, because the way the semiconductor industry works is um, you have to build capacity far ahead of actually delivering product. And, you know, the semiconductor industry works in in cycles. You build out, let's say you build out a new process for manufacturing chips at a much smaller form factor. And you have uh, companies like Intel and AMD and NVIDIA putting out their roadmaps way in advance so that you have the supply chain actually building out and fine-tuning equipment to be able to manufacture chips at the scale they're talking about, put that equipment into fabrication facilities like what you have at Taiwan Semiconductor, and it can be two to three years. So I think you're gonna see supply constraints Maybe not the same extreme shortage that we've been seeing recently, but I think you're going to see constraints for multiple years. And if you're a Taiwan Semiconductor uh, investor, that gives, you know, Taiwan Semi a little bit of pricing power. It allows them to be selective. It allows them to keep their customers close and they can be fairly well assured I mean, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's a little difficult for Taiwan Semiconductor to get over its skis over the next three years, Chris. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So when I when I look at it, I really do believe this this company is very well positioned. And it, to put a, a final point on your question, I'd like to answer, if there's something you had to look for to say, like, have we moved from extreme shortage to maybe constrained? I think just look at the backlog. Look at things like the PC backlog. If you know your, if it takes you say like two weeks to get your new Mac instead of two months, things are improving. Let's move on to Etsy because Etsy is buying yeah. Depop, a secondhand fashion app. They're paying $1.6 billion. Depop, which I'd never heard of before this morning, um, lets people buy and sell used clothes through its online marketplace. They've got 30 million users on their platform. Shares of Etsy up 2% this morning. That tells me they got a good deal at a good price. Did they? I think they did. And um, let's be clear about something that Etsy gets very little credit for. This is a cash generating monster. I mean, Etsy generates a ton of cash every single year. And let me just 
pull up a, a, the numbers here. What I show is around $795 million in free cash flow just over the trailing 12 months here, Chris. Clearly, there's a premium here. Depop would not sell if they weren't selling at some kind of premium. So we know that that's happening. But um, how long is it going to take Etsy to draw down its cash and pay this out? Probably less than a year, maybe six months to pay that out, tuck it in, and make it an important part of its branded offerings. I think it's very smart for, for Etsy as it builds out brands. Because here's the thing that, as far as Etsy is concerned, the brand is Etsy. It's not like Etsy is a holding company and it has a bunch of brands and those brands are attractive and it benefits from that. So by pulling in, so just like Apple has like Beats by Dre, like people do want Beats. And so here's an opportunity for Etsy to go out and say, you know what? Here's a brand that you know. We have all of the infrastructure, all of the mechanisms to keep Debop what it is. It's still amazing. And now we're going to give you more logistical support. We're going to make it easier to buy. We're going to give you everything you need. But this is still the same brand that you love. I think it's an interesting tuck-in acquisition, Chris. One of the things I find interesting about this deal is that it's mostly cash. And right. the, the only reason that surprises me is the way Etsy stock has performed over the past year. I would have thought if they were going to make it a cash in stock deal, they would lean more on the stock side. But you know, the way Josh Silverman has been running this company for the last four years, I, I, I don't think I or anyone else is in a place to, to sure. question how they structured this deal. Well, and let me give you some perspective here on that. Like, we don't know this for sure, but what I like about that, Chris, is you do want to preserve equity, not only to honor shareholders, but you may want to preserve equity as a pool to give to the DBOP people coming in because you want those people to be really excited about being Etsy owners. You don't want them just saying, well, here it is. I got my payout and I'm out. Like you don't really want that. So I, I think you know you want to have some some equity for people that you can you know say the most valuable Depop people who are coming in. You're going to give them equity grants. Maybe you're going to like you need that equity to attract great people, particularly when you're in the business that Etsy's in. So I think it's smart to keep. Not, you don't have to keep the equity close to your vest, but keep more of it, especially when you've got such a massive cash generating business. Why not? Yeah, and you have to. It'll be interesting to see once this is integrated, because I think they're expecting this deal to close in the third quarter of this year. Um, you know, six months from now, what sort of integration on the main Etsy platform does right. you know are we seeing? Um, because my hunch is there are some people uh, who have set up shops on Etsy. Yep. When they hear about this deal, they're thinking to themselves, "Oh, you know, fashion. This aligns wonderfully with the shop." That right. I've got, and there might be some cross marketing opportunities. So it, it's you know, on the list of reasons to do this deal, what this can do for some of the existing sellers on Etsy's platform is somewhere on that list. I, I think so, and I, I also think it may be the beginning of Etsy taking a look at can we 
find some brands that fit with what we're trying to accomplish that we can tuck in. Uh, There's there's some power in having more than one brand that can pull you in and then pull you across the offerings that the platform can provide. Um, This is the sort of thing that we've seen at, at companies like Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is another one that's trying to bring in some brands and get you to think about, hey, here's our in-house brands. And then we also have some of these other partnerships. And so don't you want to do more business with us because we've got clothes you love and we have brands you love. I think Etsy's trying to go for something similar here. It's, it's an interesting first step, but really it's just a first step. Tim Byers, great talk with you as always. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.